our experiences and tell them don't feel any obligation. Morning, gang. My old Bible that was falling apart, I took it up to Grant's Pass and a great friend of mine put it together. But I got to quit dropping it on the floor and, and Genesis isn't fixed yet. <laughs> but I, James, I think James will all come out in the right order. I'm just by way of uh, updating, I still have Mormons visiting me every Wednesday for an hour or two. That's uh, fun because they rotate. And then I have two young pastors coming by in a startup church from Campbell, and they'd want to come and do Bible time with me, which is great fun. Uh, and uh, Steve Holmland and I are now friends on Facebook. And if any of you belong to Facebook, please sign up because he only has one friend. <laughs> Uh, There are two, uh, my two favorite reference books on James are William Barclay, who's always good, and uh, uh, you can get his his collection of New Testament studies in most any bookstore, Amazon.com, with one click. Uh, in our bookstore is an outstanding commentary on James by David Roper, who was one of the founding pastors here at PBC. A very practical, real, down-to-earth book on James Little. Hey, so I forgot to bring a copy, but if you go to the bookstore, they got a whole ton of them over there. We started the book of James last week, and I found out there was a lot of lively discussion. Uh, uh, Brent Walters is going to give you 30 weeks on James, and, and we'll only do a few weeks here, so... Uh, Obviously, we're hitting the high spots here. Uh, James is very likely the bishop or the chief pastor of the church in Jerusalem from the early 40s up until his martyrdom in 66. We have a record of his martyrdom, James the Just. And I put that on the back of your schedule today so you can read that chilling account of how how he was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and didn't die and was stoned to death and asked the people stoning him, asked God to forgive them. And uh, uh, he was put to death because he was so righteous and so just. Uh, he was called old knobby knees because he prayed for long hours on the stone floor of the temple, according to tradition. Very godly man. And the, the chairman of the first church council in Jerusalem in all likelihood James is writing to the 12 tribes of the diaspora, of the dispersion. This means he probably is sending this letter to Jewish Christians who've been scattered uh, from Jerusalem and are living outside of Israel. And as we mentioned last time, an awful lot of Jews, ever since the, the time the Romans came in 63 B.C., a lot of Jews lived uh, elsewhere, a million in Alexandria, for example, uh, 100,000 probably in Rome. Large numbers of Jews, for business reasons and for other reasons, lived outside of Jerusalem. And of course, after the death of Jesus, the, 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 the uh, Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Sadducees cracked down on the early Christians. It was soon very uncomfortable to be a Christian living in Jerusalem. Many Christian Jews fled Jerusalem and moved, say, to Turkey. Peter, remember, was wrote most of his letters to the uh, uh, Jewish Christians in Turkey. The early church was Jews, Jewish, and we're in the period of the real early church. Uh, 
So uh, more Jews in the Christian church than Gentiles, but that this book is uh, very much uh, for us. Uh, 108 verses, of which about half are in imperatives, sort of commands and suggestions, and, and at least two dozen references to the Sermon on the Mount in this little letter. Uh, William Barclay says that this letter is in the style called the String of Pearls. That means that uh, James puts a, uh, a little gem of truth um, in front of you, and then he puts another one after that, and then he puts another one after that, and, and so he kind of repeats himself. So there's, the continuity uh, uh, is interrupted. Uh, we went through that in Isaiah, but this is a little different. Now, we got all the way down last week to verse about uh, 20, but let's real quickly look at it. Uh, first of all, he he begins by talking about testing. He says that uh, you're going to be tested as Christians. The same word as temptation, but the context tells you whether it's a test or a temptation. A test uh, is inevitable. We are to, to consider it all joy when we meet various trials. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> that, that God allows tests and trials so that we could become steadfast. That's that word hupomene, meaning remaining under, so that we could learn how to hang in with the Lord when things are going bad. Because that's how what grows us up. God wants us to be whole and complete, holy, perfect, not not without blemish, but mature. He wants to grow us up into adult Christian sonship. And in order to do that, he has to test us. And the idea of testing is that you can pass the test or be approved. That theme runs through the letters of Paul's also. Paul says, I pummel my body lest after preaching to others I myself might be disapproved might not be disapproved. So, so the idea is passing a test. Uh, industry tests new products to make sure that they, that they don't have any hidden defects. God's going to put you under pressure with long-term goals. Now, pressure isn't fun when you're going through it, but, if, but hang in there tight because the long-term goal that God has in the testing is to prove you, uh, to make you mature. So lean on Jesus all you need to. Uh, it's not fun necessarily when you go through that. Uh, patience. He says also that God gives wisdom readily, that if you lack wisdom, you don't know how to make a decision. You're faced with a lot of uh, uh, choices, and you don't know which is which. Ask God, and he generously gives wisdom. But God tends to not want to do things towards people who are double-minded. The word double-minded is two-souled. That would be the person who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church and, and Jesus is your life insurance program. And, and when all is said and done, you might call on Jesus maybe just as a little extra measure, but you're really not committed to him. That sort of person can't count on God coming through for him because he's not really wholeheartedly in the family. So uh, that's a good reminder that God uh, answers the prayers of those who are faithfully committed to him. And if you want your prayers answered, then give your whole heart to Jesus and go along with his program. And he says that the, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And he uses the analogy of storm-tossed waves at sea, restless and tossing around. And the description of people in the world who aren't anchored in Christ. Uh, he has, and James addresses the issue of the rich and the poor. 
several times. Now, in ancient Jerusalem, uh, which was highly class conscious, the Roman Empire with 60% of the people slaves and rich people and poor people uh, very much divided, and now suddenly they're all Christians and they're all thrown together in a common assembly and James reminds us that we're all brothers and we're all equals. And he, he goes at quite length to tell us that the poor man is actually exalted in the eyes of God. And he's very likely to end up in a high spot in heaven because he's learned how to depend on God. And the rich man's going to lose everything and at least get humbled. And you can't take your gold and silver at, at, into heaven with you. Uh, that, and so he's constantly reminding us that there are no class divisions uh, in the in the Christian assembly, and we have to pay attention. Now, we're not terribly class conscious here, I don't think. We have at PBC some very wealthy people and some very poor people, and I hardly tell who's who, uh, which is good. That's the way it ought to be. And I don't think we have any particular discrimination or class consciousness. And then he reminds us of how short life is, how brief it is, how it's just like a... The flowers on the meadow in the springtime that are so beautiful when you see them flourishing and then how quickly they wither when the summer heat comes up. That's what life is all about for for all of us. Uh, verse 12 is where he says that, that enduring temptation allows you to pass the test and have God's approval. Now he moves from testing, which is... Uh, Proving the worth or in the integrity of something. And he, he moves to the subject of temptation. Same Greek word, different context. Temptation is solicitation to sin. It's being enticed to sin. And he says, first of all, that God has no experience in evil. That he is not in the business of tempting people. So you can't say that God tempted you or God caused you to fall because he doesn't do that. He says that temptation arises from the desires of our own heart. That's where it starts. Those desires may not even be evil desires. It may, they may not be lust or jealousy or envy or something in the heart. Even legitimate desires like hunger or thirst or any kind of emotional need can be the source of a temptation. The devil lures and entices, hunting and fishing terms, terms that used to the devil is a seducer, and just like he seduced Eve by appealing to her emotions and then appealing to her mind, getting her to think about, to rationalize, to get her mind off of God, the devil lures us away so that he engages the mind and the emotions and then the will, and we end up shutting Jesus out of our hearts, stopping our dependence on him, and we give in to the impulse at which point we've fallen temporarily into the enemy's hands, right? Romans 6, we're either serving Jesus or we're serving sin. Which do you want? No other choice. And the devil likes to lure us away to, to not trust Jesus. And that's exactly the pattern of the fall, and it's replicated in every one of us. And so once you're aware that that temptation's going on in your life, you can resist it, and the sooner, the earlier, the better. Once you have an emotional need or an emotional desire, if you give it to God and talk to God first, once you, you see the process of the rationalization going on in your mind, stop it. Come back to the scriptures. Anchor your will in Jesus. That's how you get out of temptation. So that's one of my favorite little sections in the scripture. He says, when you do give in to sin, 
then inevitable things follow. A child is conceived. The child's name is sin. Sin grows in the, in the womb, as it were, and is born into the world as death. Boredom, loneliness, guilt. Sin is forgivable, but sin has consequences. Glenn Miller's famous consequence engine. You're going to get forgiven, but, but the consequence of that sin is going to go on and on and on, and you just have to let it work its way out. If you can think up ahead, yeah, because sin is fun or we wouldn't bother with it. Sin is attractive and pleasurable, and the devil would, it, would like you to think about the immediate pleasure you're going to get and then have you not think about that fact that you're going to pay a big price. I like the analogy of, of driving a nail into the wall. Uh, you can pull the nail out, but the hole remains behind. Uh, Now, that's, that's a good point. Whether it is a temptation you're in or a trial depends on how you deal with it because a trial, which God intended to test you, could be, at, uh, could end up being a temptation if you cave in. Then it's not the trial that God intended for you. You buckled, you caved in. Uh, so, so temptation and trial are kind of closely related. See that? When you overcome temptation, then it turns into be a test, and it turns out to strengthen you. Every time you say no to sin, your will gets stronger. Every time you cave in to sin, your will gets weaker. So those are, uh, and Dave Roper discusses that. Okay, we've reached verse 17. I love verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every act of giving, which is generous, originates with God. All giving that is generous starts with God. He's the motivator. And the gift itself comes from God, which is pretty neat. Everything we have comes from God, and God gives uh, uh, out of his goodwill and his kindness and mercy. And when you give generously, then the source of that giving and the gift itself are from God. And then God is described as the father of the lights with whom there's no parallax and no eclipsing. Two words from astronomy. No variation. In other words, God's the father of the stars, the angels, and us. We're lights too, and God's constant. He's the constant light that never varies at all. No, no eclipsing and no parallax. Verse 18, I love this little verse. Having uh, of his own will, or having willed it, having willed it, he begat us again, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Having willed that, that's election, having willed us, he begat us again. He caused us to be born again, and the means by which we were born again was this word of God planted in our hearts, which resulted in a new birth and a conception of a new life in us. Uh, the, the preaching of the gospel... Uh, came into your heart, you heard about Jesus, you let it settle down in, and you were born again by the word of truth so that you could be kind of first fruits of his new creation. Now, first fruits is associated with the resurrection of Jesus. That means that when you are born again, you're already identified with Jesus in his resurrection. We say that in baptism, that you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection. So here we are, we're the first fruits, and, and the resurrection lies ahead for us, and God did this of his own choice. 
Uh, again, you'd see here, obviously, that real Christian is somebody who's been spiritually reborn. Somebody who's been born again, as in John 3, be essential. By the word of truth, by the planting of the word. James is really strong about that, that, that the word of God is a living word, and if, when it's planted in your heart, it takes root and grows there. So plant the word of God in your heart, and it will grow, just like seeds grow in good ground. Now he talks again. He's very anxious that we not run around angry. Uh, he says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, getting angry, uh, trying to settle accounts feels good. Getting even with somebody, taking vengeance feels good. You think you're going to correct the other person, but not usually. You usually don't make things better. You usually make them worse. Leave it to God to, to be the one that handles the matters of justice. And, and I'd love getting angry when, it, when, I, when I'm right, which is not always, but I get angry when I'm wrong too. Uh, the word there for, there's two Greek words for anger, as you know. There's one that's the sudden flare-up of anger that subsides quickly, and then there's the settled abiding anger, and that's the word he uses here. This uh, seething grudge that hangs in there, I'm going to get even with so-and-so because they did this and such to me, and I'm going to find a way to get back at them. Don't. Turn it over to God and let God deal with it. He'll deal with it far better. You just have to wait, that's all. Oh gosh! Oh gosh! Uh, the roadshow column on uh, uh, in the San Jose Mercury's had a lot of advice on road rage these days. <laughs> a lot of practical advice because people in Los Angeles, I think they still carry guns and shoot each other on the freeway. But <laughs> life is very stressful in Silicon Valley. And we are pushed and stressed to the limit. And, and, and anger is a normal human emotion when we're stressed. Can you give it to God? Can you give it to God? Yeah. I think the, uh, the word that we've got translated as anger is the root word for our word orgy. It is. Uh, O-R-G-E is the Greek word orgy. <laughs> it's intense, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Or gay. Uh, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Does not bring about the righteousness of God. That's really important. You, the, you want character development in other people. Your anger isn't going to help that. If you yell at your kids, that's not going to. It's not going to get the end result you want out of them. Then he says that we ought to be uh, uh, swift to hear and slow to speak. Uh, we ought to do a lot of listening and not much talking. Good advice. Um, uh, he says that we ought to, interesting, probably uh, John Anneker has some comments on verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's two Greek words there for wickedness that are, what are those, John? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got the word <laughs> filthiness. Oh, 
There's two strong words here for the wickedness that is sort of embedded in us and entwined in us and like weeds in the garden, and they're both really nasty words. <laughs> in Greek, and he says, strip it all out, root it out, pull up the weeds. That's the idea here. And instead of that, put the word of God in your heart and let the word of God grow and build a garden. Now, uh, we kind of got that far last week, sort of. Uh, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. This is really getting to, into the heart of what James is all about. The word doer is a very interesting word because the root there, the root for doer is the same word we use for the word poem or poetry. Doers of the word, you think of good works are as good as drudgery, but good work should be creative. Uh, it should be uh, thoughtful. Doers of the word and not not hearers. The idea of hearing is being an auditor. Take a class when you're not taking it for credit. You're just auditing the class. Are you auditing this class? For example, would be, did you just come here to be entertained, or will you apply what you hear? That's what he wants us to do. Now, you remember all the way through the whole Old Testament, what the the prophets accused Israel of was hypocrisy, was hearing the word and not doing it, was not acting on it, was not living it out, was being phony, was ignoring what you hear. And we discussed before the fact that when you hear truth and don't act on it, you lose it. When you hear truth and act on it, the truth becomes part of who you are, and that's the way you grow. By hearing truth, by acting on it, by following through, by putting it into changing your changing your life based on what you heard new today. Be be hearers, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, not auditors, deceiving yourselves. That's interesting. That if you hear truth and you don't act on it, you actually deceive yourself, and you're going to end up worse than if you'd never heard the truth in the first place. Dangerous to go to church. Dangerous to read the Bible if you just read it and then say, oh, that was nice. Because God's paying attention and he will make sure that if you don't act on the truth, that you don't care about the truth and you don't, that you're going to end up worse off, deceived. People get into cults. People get all messed up in their theology. Strong. James, by the way, is pretty pithy and strong and outspoken. I wonder what he was like in person talking in to his congregation in Jerusalem, he's probably pretty salty, pretty stern, and, and pretty just. I, I like the kind of bite that he has. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. Analogy there? See the picture? The person who hears and does not act on the word is maybe compared to the little kid that comes off the street and looks in the mirror and sees he's got mud all over his face and his mom calls him to dinner, but he doesn't wash the mud off his face. (laughs) It means you take a good look at your life and then you ignore what you see. That's this imagery of looking in the mirror and ignoring what you see, looking looking at your life. Yeah. Ray Stedman, that was one of his constant comments on Christianity these days, was that it was a spectator's 
sport that we had 10 people on the field playing their whole hearts out and getting exhausted and 100,000 people in the stands in need of a little exercise. And <laughs> yes, ma'am. And your heart hardens. And then you won't hear anymore. This is really something. Uh, the whole history of Israel shows this. The whole the history of old churches is like this. Hearing truth and then not acting on it, ignoring it, uh, maybe agreeing in your mind, but never changing your lifestyle. And you'll lose the truth. It'll be taken away from you and you'll be hard-hearted. And then the next time you hear the truth, it it won't cut in. It doesn't have any cutting edge anymore. Well, you mean like politicians? <laughs> like politicians and a lot of preachers. <clears throat> but, verse 25, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Okay, let's have it. What does that say about there is a person, uh, some of you are looking into the perfect law of liberty, whatever that is, and you're continuing in it, and you're a doer of the word, and you're not forgetful, and you're paying attention to what you're hearing, then you're going to be blessed in what you do. Now, what in the word, world is the perfect law of liberty? Well, you could say that it's the New Testament. But looking into the perfect law of liberty. There we go. That's probably close to the freedom of being in Christ. How about the law of love? Does love, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you genuinely love God and you genuinely love other people and you're working on that, does that sort of cover the bases? It will, yeah. That's kind of... That, it's got to be written on your heart. The law, because the, the real liberty has got to be a matter of the heart. It can't be outward conformity. It can't be just putting on a show of being righteous if you're not in your heart. So um, it, I think he wants us to have a certain kind of freedom and joy and liberty in living our Christian lives. The Christian life should be exciting. It should be fun. It should fit you as an individual and your gifts. It ought to be loads of fun to be a Christian. Ray used to complain about Christians who were dipped in embalming fluid and, and uh, preachers that talked with stained glass voices because it, and they make it dreary and, and boring and dull. And Christian life is very, very, it's very exciting. And it's designed for you. It's tailor-made for you. It's a funny thing that when you die to self, and you let Jesus live your life for you, how much more of the real you shows up? Isn't that incredible paradox? That losing your life is how you save it? Now, there's a, uh, the last two verses of verse 26 are interesting. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is useless. <laughs> As of no purpose. <laughs> He's got a lot more to tell us about the tongue, uh, which we think uh, is, and can't cause harm, but he has says otherwise. So if you think you're religious and you don't know how to bridle your tongue, then your whole lifestyle, your whole religion is of no purpose. You can undo all kinds of good works by being gossipy or snide or 
cutting or right? Don't you don't people quickly discredit themselves sometimes with just careless word or two? Well, we'll have more on that later. And then he says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What's interesting there is the word religion, threskia, appears very, very rarely in the New Testament, about three times or four times. Religion, the word religion is rare. And when the word religion is used in the New Testament, it always means the practical service of religion. If you really want to prove that you love God, then that's going to show up by the little things you do in private, such as visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. Nobody knows about it. It doesn't get in the morning paper which reflects your heart. Are you compassionate toward the homeless? Are you going to go out of your way and do something for somebody who really needs help? That's what the New Testament considers pure religion. Well, when you talk to a secular person about religion, uh, you're usually talking about cathedrals and incense and hymns and, and, and the, the ceremonial service of religion. And the New Testament has no particular uh, blessing to put on on, on pompous show of religious activity. That, that doesn't matter. Well, the low profile kind of way you live is what God's looking at. See that in there? James is after that. James doesn't put any value on the, on the public display of religion. It's how you live privately day to day during the week. That's pretty neat. Visit widows and orphans in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. How in the world could the, how can you living in the world make you spotted? Defiled. How in the world is that could that possibly happen? Spotted or stained. That's keep yourself from being unstained, unspotted by the world. What happens? Yeah, we can't we cannot live like the pagans around us in our lifestyles we can't uh, talk like they do in the locker room talk and, and gossip and bad language and values and we, we, we're mingling all week long with unbelievers but we have to keep ourselves separated and faithful to the Lord otherwise we get stained defiled, contaminated real easy real easy especially when things are so prosperous and, and the, the world is so attractive as it is right now. I'm teaching the book of Judges on Saturday at San Jose. And it's interesting that when the, when the Jews came into the promised land, uh, the Canaanite religion, uh, uh, the, the land was absolutely prosperous. Uh, it was overflowing with milk and honey and crops and productivity. And the Jews got the idea that well, that was probably because of the Canaanite religion that the people were, had bought into. So they thought, well, we'll buy into the Canaanite religion and that will help us grow our crops uh, successfully. And God, of course, had forbidden that totally. But they bought into that. Yeah. The fertility god, uh, gods of the, of the Canaanites. Are there pagan gods in Silicon Valley anywhere? Or have we moved beyond that? 
primitive superstition. No way that we that pay the Silicon Valley is an idolatrous place. The prosperity of Silicon Valley, while it might be God's benevolent kindness on it, comes out of the pagan idolatry of this city, this area. Sorry, but we're in James. Chapter 2. My brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Um, respect of persons. The Greek is funny. It says the lifting up, by lifting up of the face. Uh, my brothers, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or with respect of persons. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit uh, here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So imagine the early church in Jerusalem now where the rich and poor uh, are very obviously, you can tell the rich man from the poor man, and now the rich man comes into the church service and the ushers all rush to make sure that person gets the front row seat. And the poor guy comes in who's just as good a Christian and he is ignored. That's what he's after here. As I mentioned, that I doubt that applies very much to us, but do you see this? The whole idea of respect of persons, what he's after here, partiality, favoritism towards people that we perceive in a place of influence. Yeah, I think there's still the subtle pressure of who you're willing to sort of talk to beyond the surface. You tend to gravitate to people you're more comfortable with. We do do. Come across as partiality. We do do that. We do. We do have our favorite little. Uh, uh, set of friends, and the, 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 once again, the reminder here is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that everybody comes to Jesus on exactly the same basis, that God has no favorites, as Ray Stedman like to say, God has no favorites, but he does have many intimates, and anyone can be an intimate with God on God's terms, but nobody can be a favorite. We'd all like to think that we're God's favorite kid, and he's going to give you special treatment. No. He does not give special treatment to you just because you're good-looking or nice or polite or sweet or you had good parents. He does not show partiality. Intimacy, yes. If you want to have God as your intimate friend, yes, but not as a favorite. Well, that wouldn't be show. That, that's not partiality. If you are an alcoholic, and it would be wise for you not to hang around other alcoholics when you're recovering. That's just a question of wisdom. That's not partiality. You like them. You care for them. You don't. You want them to get well, but you know that you would endanger yourself if you tried to rescue them.
<laughs> there. That, that's good. Yeah. That, yeah I, I seem to remember that. Yeah. That's good. There, that's the right kind of identification with the, with the, with the person who's not exactly our, like us, not our kind, to reach out to other people. Okay. Uh, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's, again, that's pretty strong, isn't it? It's pretty direct. And uh, notice again how uh, somehow God favors the poor. Uh, why, do the, why is it that more poor people, and maybe it looks like, end up in heaven? Why did Jesus spend a lot of time with poor people? Why do you suppose? A poor person is more likely to uh, to know that he's needy, more likely to see that 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 he hasn't got what it takes, and the rich person is more likely to trust in his wealth and trust in his own resources and not see his need, which is at least as great. Now, does God save rich people? It certainly does. Are there a lot of rich Christians? Yes, there are, who are kind and generous. And and now if you take James's words rich and poor and you just translate those so poor in spirit like it would come out of the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit is the one who gets God's help, the person who's bankrupt, the person who knows he has a need, the person who calls on God regardless of his status economically. That's the person that God helps. God lifts up the poor man. Now, he also talks about the common problem in that day or the common problem that it's rich people that hire lawyers and, and press lawsuits and take your money away from you and are very quick to use their money against other people they don't like. And plenty of that going on in the secular culture around about us. But Christians aren't to have lawsuits against each other. Okay? Not as relevant in Silicon Valley as it probably was in first century Jerusalem, but... You can think about this week. Uh, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all of it. One of the most important verses in the whole New Testament. What were the Jews really good at? Keeping the law. How many many commandments in the law? Well, there's uh, ten commandments, but the total commandments are 613 total. And a lot of the rabbis in Jerusalem worked very, very meticulously on their long list of 613 plus the embellishments and the little details because you've got to try to keep all of them. And you fail in one point. And that's because why is that so? Why would be failure in one point of the law be, cause you to fail in the whole lot of it? Why? Yeah. The only person that can keep the whole law is a sinless person, and the only sin per- sinless person we know is Jesus. Uh, he's the one who fulfills the law in us. The law is there to show you the character of God, and if you claim to be keeping the whole law, then you, cl- you claim to be 
on, on God's territory, on his terms. You're as good as God. So remember that the law, Romans 3, the law is there to prove your guilt. The law is there to show that you do not measure up to what God's standards are. So you better cry out for mercy. And this is, means don't run around and tell everybody that you keep most of the Ten Commandments part of the time. Because that won't do. <laughs> or some of the commandments, or that you know what they are, or you could recite them. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your might. And you shall have no other gods before me. And you get how, how many of you does that? <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, this is a Jewish believer in Jerusalem talking to Jews who are Christians and talking to us. First John one nine. We, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that they, they, Psalm one hundred nineteen, which is all about loving the law, is designed to. to show you the depths of your own need and to get you to call on God constantly and let him renew your heart. Because in the end, we all have to be like Christ in the end. We all have to live up to God's standards, but we can't do it on our own. So the law is good, but it's not there to, it's there to, to make us call for mercy. Uh, whoever said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He picks out a couple of obvious examples. You're not a you're not a uh, an adulterer, but you run around murdering. And of course, if you add the Sermon on the Mount to this, James probably heard the Sermon on the Mount by his brother Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Or if you lust after a woman, you're already an adulterer in your own heart. So take your choice here. So be careful about if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. How is God going to judge you? Do you want God to judge you according to the law? Do you want to go into a courtroom with Jesus and have him get out the law book and its details and the record of your life on his laptop computer and go point by point by point down through every detail of your life and and show you the list of charges against you? No. How would you like to go when you go in and talk to Jesus at the end of your life? How would you like him to deal with you?
he introduces you to a person and you bring that person to the Lord or help him or do something to, to solve a problem in his life, then uh, I think you're doing a job. We, and we're only human. The, the law of liberty here again, law of love, I had, was thinking of Colossians 1. Remember that little place in Colossians 1 where it says that the, the list of all of the charges against us has been nailed to the cross? All of the possible charges that could ever come against you in a court of law, every last detail has been written down. The paper's folded over, it's nailed to the cross, and that means that as far as God is concerned, your case is closed. There are no charges on the books in heaven against you. You are innocent. That's how complete Jesus, how completely he took away all of your sins. They can't ever come up against you again. And any. Well, you better get them confessed today. When Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future, you weren't even born yet. So he's got he, he's got you nailed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Let's look at look at this last little verse here that I think is just a, a wonderful heart of James. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, yet mercy triumphs over judgment. The word triumphs there is shouts out loud. Judgment is out without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. On judgment day, what are we looking for? We're looking for God's mercy and not God's judgment. Will he deal with us in mercy and compassion? Yes, he will. The sins that you committed have all been paid for. That's not the issue. The issue with God is not your sins. That's done. Paid for. Paid in full. No charges against you. That's done. So when you go meet Jesus, he's going to talk about how you lived your life, about the things that you did that pleased him and the things that you did that didn't please him. And it's an awards ceremony. The judgment seat of Christ is to commend you for your life. And you've got to let Jesus deal with them. You can't hang on to those old sins. That's right. Okay, is that... Do you see how salty and crusty James is here? Steve, would you pray for us?